All right, well, hey there, Northside. Hi, Northside, how are you doing this morning? All right, thank you, I like that. So, it, you rock too. Um, it is really good to be here, it is an honor to be here. And uh, while this is my first time speaking at Northside, I've been familiar with the church for about 15 years. Uh, and that's through some connections I have here at Northside. Jim and Julie Propst are dear friends of my wife, Jamie, and I. We've known them for probably 10 years or more. And then Nate and Ruthie Ross were some of our first neighbors 15 years ago back in Illinois. And so over the last 15 years, we've heard different stories about what God has done here at Northside, as well as what he's doing now and continues to do. And it's exciting because it just sounds like God is blessing this church, using this church to be such a blessing to the community around you. And so I am sincere when I say it's an honor because I feel like I'm standing in a place that God has said, yep, I want to do something significant through Northside. So I, I count it as a, a privilege. Uh, it's also fun for me to be back in the Midwest, although I live out in the coastlands of San Diego now. Uh, I was born and bred in the land of cornfields here in the Midwest. So I grew up about two and a half hours west of here in Mount Carmel, Illinois, small farm town near Evansville, Indiana. And uh, growing up, I was the oldest of five. I've got three brothers and a sister. And we went to church, but I wouldn't say church or God, Jesus were kind of the primary kind of focus of our family. And in seventh grade, something happened at the church we were attending. There was a fallout. We stopped going to church. And I didn't go back to church until my senior year of high school. And the reason I went back to church my senior year of high school was because I got arrested for drinking and driving. Not something I am advocating or promoting here today. And when I lost my license for four months, I had a friend invite me to come to his church. And the main reason I accepted the invitation was simply because I wanted to get out of my house. Uh, my parents kept reminding me of how dumb I was because the decision I made, which was true. And so I said yes to the invitation and it was the best yes I've ever made. Uh, the, the service just, it felt like it was crafted just for me. There was a youth pastor there that over the next year took a lot of intentionality to spend time with me and share the gospel with me. And on March 7th of 1999, I made the decision to say yes to following Jesus and I got baptized. That, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big deal. That following fall, I went away to college and on March 7th, 2000, I experienced a second baptism. Not by water, but this time it was baptism by urine. Let me explain. Um, March 7th, 2000, I am face first in a urinal at a frat house intoxicated. I have not really done well at honoring the promise I made to following Jesus. And I remember somehow getting back to my dorm room, I woke up that about the middle of the night, I think two, two or three o'clock in the morning, and I saw this little placard sitting on my desk that I'd been given a year previous at my baptism. It said, Jesus is the answer. And it hit me how a year has passed and I'm no longer really honoring this commitment to Christ. I went back to sleep and I had a dream that I was standing in front of people, telling people about Jesus and, and playing guitar. I woke up that morning and thought, wow, that was just a, a rough night. I don't know what to make of that. Like that's a whacked out dream. But over the next two weeks, I had three different people come up to me and ask if I'd ever considered starting some type of a Bible study. This prompted me to choose to say, I probably should go to church. Something's happening right now. And so I went to this church along with my brother because we went to undergrad together. And in the middle of the service, 
this kind of middle-aged woman comes up next to me, sits beside me, puts her hand on my leg, and she looks at me, and she says, this has never happened to me before. And I looked her right in the eyes, and I said, listen, cougar, and it can't happen now. This is church. Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> nope, I didn't say that. Um, she, she sincerely said, I just feel like God is telling me that whatever he's trying to prompt you to, you need to pay attention and listen. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so the next few months, I remember staying in my dorm room most weekends because I didn't trust myself going out. That next fall, we started a Bible study that eventually became a campus ministry. And I, at the time, was going to school to become a nurse anesthetist. It was my aspirations to put people to sleep during surgery and make lots of money. God had a sense of humor and a different set of plans. I, I may still put people to sleep by preaching, but I make far less money doing that now. And... Um, I ended up leading that campus ministry for six years, took a job at a local church, is where I actually met Jim Props. And in 2012, my wife and I, and at the time we only had one child, we now have four beautiful children, we moved from the land of cornfields to the coastlands to launch Rise City Church. This October will be our 10 year anniversary, and in that 10 years, we have been so blessed to see hundreds of people be baptized, give millions of dollars away and plant 14 new churches also in that area and internationally. And so it's just been exceptional to be a part of that. Now I share that with you, not at any way of boasting, or not even just, just a way of introducing myself to you, but more so to boast on the great God that we're here gathered to worship today. Because I have no idea where I'd be at if God did not intervene in my life and, and reset the trajectory of my life. And his abundant and amazing forgiveness and mercy that he bestowed on me, completely transformed me. And I believe that that same mercy and forgiveness and abundance that's transformational is available to every single person in this room right now or even watching online. And so when I was uh, encouraged to today continue in the Quest 52 and, and to preach on this particular topic, I was so excited because the question we're gonna wrestle with is like, it's such an important question and a question that's so dear to my heart. And here's the question that we're gonna look at for a few moments this morning is simply this, can Jesus forgive me? Have you ever found yourself asking that question? Can Jesus forgive me? And really underneath that question on the surface level, I think there are a couple questions actually lurking underneath the surface at the subterranean level. That underneath the question, can Jesus forgive me, are these two questions. First off, does Jesus actually have the authority and the ability to forgive me? And then the next question is, you know, simply this, does Jesus actually have the willingness and the desire to forgive me? And in that question, it's really like, you know your laundry list of sins, and if Jesus knows that, is he really willing, to, does, he, does he desire to forgive you, or is he gonna be like culture and say, nope, you're canceled? And the text that we're gonna look at today, I, I believe we're gonna see a resounding absolutely yes to the answers to these questions. But I wanna invite you to stand with me for a few minutes. We're gonna read Mark chapter two, verses one through 17. The church that I pastor in San Diego, we stand in honor of God's word as well as anticipation of what God would want to speak to us today because his word is still living and active. So this is Mark chapter two, verses one through 17. Since a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So they could not get him in 
to Jesus because of the crowd that they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Go ahead and have a seat. Can Jesus forgive me? That's what we're going to try to unpack. So this text starts in this small village by the name of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that Jesus has come home. Now, it's interesting because there's different interpretations of what it means when it says he came home. Perhaps Capernaum was like his home base because this is where he kind of set up to do ministry. But there are some that even believe that this is actually where Jesus may have had a physical house. Like the home is actually Jesus's house. There are some verses in Matthew that actually support that as well. Now, it's just, it's just fascinating to think that if this is actually Jesus's house that he's teaching in, and we know what's going to happen in just a moment. We're going to see that, that a hole is ripped in the roof of the house of Jesus. Like think about the audacious faith on behalf of those four friends to actually tear a hole in the house of the Son of God. Like that, that's, that's a big deal. But there's others that say, no, 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 it's not Jesus' house. Maybe it's Peter's house. Maybe it's his mother-in-law's house. We're not exactly sure whose house it is. Just, just fun to kind of think about. They're in some house. In a traditional home there in Capernaum, we're, we're told there are crowds that have gathered. Now crowds, we think maybe crowds like this, but I would not say it's near this large. A, a crowd in that house would probably have been 20 to 30 people that would have filled that space. And they're beginning to overflow from that space, we're told, outside of the door. The crowd is made up of people there from Capernaum, as well as there are different religious leaders like Pharisees from that area and the surrounding area who have come and they have come to hear Jesus, but not to hear Jesus because they're interested in Jesus, but more so because they are trying to dispel the rumor and the momentum that's going forth that this Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, this traveling rabbi, may in fact be the very Messiah they've long awaited for for hundreds of years. And so they've all gathered and Jesus is teaching here. And as Jesus is teaching amongst this crowd in this house, we're told that there are these four friends who bring another friend of theirs who's paralyzed to this place. Now, we're not really sure what motivated these four friends to carry their friend to Jesus, right? We don't know perhaps if they were from Capernaum and, and perhaps the last time when Jesus was in Capernaum, we're told that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. 
And, and then that night, many people lined up outside the door and he healed people. Maybe they heard about Jesus being able to heal and that's why they thought, let's go to him. Maybe they themselves, maybe one of the four had been healed by Jesus, we're not sure. Right before this, Jesus had healed a leper of his skin disease. So, so somehow they have heard that this Jesus not only teaches, but has healing powers. And so they persuade their friend who's paralyzed to say, we're gonna carry you. We don't know how far, but we're gonna carry you to Jesus and see if he can actually make a difference in your life. But when they get to this home there in Capernaum, they can't get to Jesus because they're crowded out by the crowds who are surrounding Jesus. And in many ways, this is a sad commentary that we have to be very cautious and aware of as church people or Christians, if that describes you here today. Because sometimes we are too preoccupied with experiencing Jesus, learning from Jesus, being around Jesus, if you will, for ourselves at the expense of looking around us and thinking about there are other people that also are trying to get to the feet of Jesus as well. And, and we can crowd them out if we're not careful. Are you with me? We have to have eyes to see not just what we need, but the people around us that they have needs as well to come to Christ. But no one's really paying attention in this moment to this man lying on a mat who can't help himself. He can't get up and walk on his own. And so his four friends improvise. And there's nothing in the text that would indicate that they asked for permission. Can we go up on top of your roof and rip a hole in it? I mean, they just did. Because there was a desperation and a deep-seated belief that this can change everything if we get our friend to Jesus. And so they somehow get to the top of this house and they begin to tear a hole in the roof. Now, the last time I checked, that doesn't happen really quickly, which means there's some really awkward moments as they're ripping a hole in this roof. Because Jesus is teaching underneath this roof. And you know the people in the room are hearing this clamor above them. And as Jesus is talking and teaching, all of a sudden debris starts falling on him. And it's a weird phenomenon. Those of you who public speak or perhaps preachers know this, but it's weird that you can be preaching to a group of people and at the same time in the back of your head having a complete side conversation like, hmm, I wonder if the hamburgers and hot dogs taste good on the patty on the picnic. You're like, I can be thinking that right now while I'm preaching to you. Which makes me wonder, what was Jesus's conversations internally as debris is falling and a hole is emerging, perhaps in his very roof of his house? And is he beginning to think to himself, oh man, that's gonna be a problem. Like I, I might have to pick up some more carpentry gigs, man. I gotta make some money to fix that. Or I gotta, I gotta call Peter, James, and John to go on some more fishing trips. Or, or perhaps in a minute, we're gonna see that he actually calls this tax collector to follow him. Maybe he ask Levi to follow him because he's like, he's got money. He can pay for that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It's just fun to think about, right? But at some point, as Jesus is teaching and trying to keep the attention of the crowd, a hole emerges, light pierces through, and there's these faces that are looking down, and they then begin to lower this man into the room. And I am willing to bet you could have heard a pin drop because of the silence that filled that space in that moment. Just like, oh my goodness, like what is about to happen? Here comes this man lowered down. And then he, at one point, hits the ground. And people are just like, in anticipation, like what is about to take place? And then Jesus, we're not told that he originally looks at the man, but it says he essentially looks up and he sees their four friends. And he says, when he saw the faith of the four friends, when he saw that they were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus, when he saw their faith, their belief that Jesus actually could be a source of hope and healing for their buddy, it says, then Jesus looked at this 
paralyzed man, and he didn't do what people expected him to do. The expectation was to bring physical healing. But what Jesus does instead is he looks at this man and he speaks into the silence and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And with that silence that had been broke through by those words of your sins have been forgiven, the next sound would have been a universal gasp of like, <gasps> and someone in the back, some, some were going, oh no, he didn't. Like, because who is he to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And this was not the expectation. You're supposed to heal his physical infirmity. You're speaking to something within him, which tells us in this moment that Jesus saw that the greatest thing plaguing this man was not his physical paralysis, but rather the paralysis of his soul, which came about because of his sin condition. That Jesus chose in this moment to look beyond the outside to the inside and to speak to heal the inside because he knew the healing of the inside would actually not just be healing in this life, but actually pave the way to life everlasting. That Jesus is aware and we need to be aware that the greatest need of humanity is not to have our needs met, but rather it is to be forgiven because the paralysis of the soul is eternal if we do not find the hope of Christ. That Jesus in this moment chooses to address what we would say is the ultimate, which lasts forever, rather than get caught up on the urgent. It's not to diminish the value and the importance of the urgent of this man's physical paralysis, but Jesus speaks to something deeper. I mean, what would it look like if we were people who had an ultimate mindset rather than a mindset of urgency? What would that do to our prayer life? What would that do to our, our, our time and allocations of our, of our finances if we had an ultimate-based mindset rather than an urgency-based mindset? I could preach a whole other sermon on that one. <laughs> but in this moment, people are just aghast, like, oh my goodness, he just spoke forgiveness over this man's sins. And then Jesus picks up on what some of the religious leaders are thinking. We're told that he senses what they're thinking which that means Jesus knows your thoughts. Like, don't try to hide your thoughts. Just be honest. He knows what you're thinking. And he speaks to what they're wrestling with mentally. And he says to the religious leaders, well, which would be easier for me to say? That this guy's sins are forgiven? Or if you need proof, like, or to tell this guy to get up, pick up his mat and, and walk out of here. But so that you might know that the son of man has the authority to actually forgive sins, as I just said I did, I'm gonna tell this guy, hey, do me a favor. Go ahead, pick up your mat, walk on out of here. And Jesus invites this man to do just that. And he does just that. And people, I mean, you gotta put yourself in that crowded space at Capernaum. You gotta be, oh my, did that just happen? Because when this guy, stands up, grabs his mat, and walks on out. I mean, I, I, now I think there's just a roaring applause. And Jesus, if he would have had a microphone, would have just been like, and walked on out, you know? That's a mic drop moment. It is. It's unbelievable. And in doing so, it answers the first question that's underneath the question of, can Jesus forgive me? Does he really have the authority and the ability to forgive? I would just tell you to look upward and to see that gaping hole in that small home as evidence, you bet he can. 
And it's not just the, the hole in the roof and the healed paralyzed man that gives credence and evidence that Jesus has the authority to heal, but you can look at the other healings that we're gonna see take place that Jesus provides, which only validates his promise to be able to forgive you of sin. There's an empty tomb that stamps his authority above all authority that he can forgive sin. And there are just records of church history over the last couple thousand years where people have experienced hope and healing in Christ. I promise you, can Jesus forgive you? Does he have the authority and ability to? You bet he does. Just let the light shine through the hole in the roof to convince you. He can, he will, and he wants to. After this moment, Jesus then we're not sure if it's right after this moment, maybe it's a day, a week, but it, we're told that it kind of transitions that he goes back by the Sea of Galilee and on his way, he passes this tax collector's booth and there's a man there named Levi, who's later gonna be renamed Matthew, that is there. Now, just for a little context, in case you are not aware, tax collectors were not very uh, favorable in the eyes of the Jewish people. They were seen to be traitors and deeply hated on par with the Samaritan people. Because the Jewish people who became tax collectors ultimately were choosing to side with Rome, pad Rome's pockets with money, as well as in charging exorbitant tax rates to their own people, that very tax collector would get rich on top of his own people as well. And so Jewish people despised tax collectors. And for Jesus to right after he's just created a ton of momentum and people are like, this, this may be the Messiah, like this is incredible. And he's got a buzz about him and he spoke about his ability to forgive sins, for Jesus to make his first stop after that at a tax collector's booth, you gotta believe that some of the other disciples are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We got a lot of momentum. We're about to go viral here, Jesus. Don't screw this up. Don't do this. This is not the type of people we wanna associate with. Like maybe later, but not right now. We're just getting rolling, man. But Jesus, comes by that booth, looks at Levi and says, follow me. And we're not sure what motivated Levi to say yes, to follow him. Perhaps he had been at that house and, and seen the miracle take place. Perhaps he heard the buzz about it. And, and maybe at one point, maybe, maybe the, the healed paralyzed man walked past his tax collector's booth and he's like, uh, didn't you not walk yesterday? Tell me about that. Maybe Levi was wrecked internally with guilt and shame because he knew what he was doing he shouldn't be doing, but he didn't know how not to do it because he loved what was coming from it nonetheless with the wealth for his family and other things like that. And so whatever it was, when Jesus said, follow me, he did. And not only did he follow Jesus, but then he decides to throw a party. It's a dinner party, whether it's that evening or later in the week, we don't know, but Mark informs us that as he follows Jesus, then later, on Jesus at a dinner party with Levi, as well as other tax collectors and sinners. Which I've always, I always think about, I mean, who are the people lumped into that category, right? Like at some point you're like, I, I'm actually in the Bible, I'm right there. You see what it says, tax collectors and sinners, that's me. Like what a great way to get, make the scriptures. Um, but Jesus is having this dinner party and you know it's a nice one. I mean, it's thrown by tax collectors, this is rich people. So this is some good food, probably a lot bigger house than the one that has a hole in it now. And there's, there's people sitting around this table and there's disciples and, and then there's the religious people that are taking notice that Jesus is actually eating with these tax collectors and sinners and they're curious why. And the reason they're curious why was because this was a huge like social no-no and spiritual no-no in that culture. Because for a rabbi or a teacher 
to eat with certain people, who you ate with or was willing to dine with in that culture was a direct expression of who you believed God ultimately would welcome around his banqueting table in eternity. So when Jesus decides to eat with the company of tax collectors and sinners, it is him directly expressing, I believe God would welcome these very people to his banqueting table as well. Which prompts the religious leaders to think like, no, 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 no. They're, they're sinners. They've missed the mark. They're not good enough. They failed. They're not as righteous as us. And so they prompt and ask the question, like, why does he do this? And once again, they haven't learned their lesson because Jesus can know what you're thinking. And so he addresses their thoughts and he says, here's the deal, guys. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. And I've come for the sick. I love the sick. I've not come for the, for the righteous. I've come for sinners. It's not to say I don't love those who are righteous. I just, I'm just telling you, as a doctor who comes to bring healing and has hope for you, if you're a healthy patient and you don't have a realization that you actually have need for a doctor, then I'm no good for you. But the sick people, they definitely know they need a doctor, and so I'm great for them. But the reality of the human condition is that we are all sick. We all have had sin. And therefore, Jesus was trying to say, I'm actually for absolutely everyone, but if you are not willing to address and acknowledge that you have need and that you're sick and you need a savior, then I can't help you. And some of us at times do not experience the healing of Christ because we haven't looked to Jesus for the healing of Christ as our doctor because we think that we're righteous on our own. But Jesus was saying, I I've come I've come for the sick and I desire to heal the sick because I love the sick and I, my heart breaks for the sinner. My heart breaks for those who struggle with their sin. And there's a, there's a passage in the book of Hebrews that I wanna share just for a minute to, to help us understand you know, that question, the second question underneath the question, that question of does Jesus really have the willingness and the desire to heal me? I wanna tell you, he absolutely does. He does care about you. He loves you. He's crazy about you. And he wants to bring hope and healing and forgiveness to your life. And we know this because he understands us and he gets us. Let me read Hebrews chapter four. These are verses 15 and 16. It says this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The author of Hebrews is, is addressing Jesus here as being the ultimate high priest. And he says that, that this high priest Jesus is able to empathize with us because he's been tempted in every single way. The word that's translated as empathize simply just means to co-suffer with, to feel the same thing that another feels. And I think it's important for us to realize here today that Jesus co-suffers with us because he understands our temptations and he actually understands the weight of our temptations and how heavy they are to a greater degree than even we do. Because for us, oftentimes, the weight that temptation brings with it crushes us and then we succumb to the temptation and that succumbing to the temptation is actually sin. 
But Jesus himself never sinned, we're told. He was tempted in every single way, but he did not sin. Which means that he was tempted to the same level that we were, but he didn't stop and succumb to the sin. He actually bared up underneath the weight of the temptation and continued all the way through it. And if he knows how hard that is, then he also understands how hard it is for us. And his heart breaks for us because he wants us not to get crushed under the weight of sin, but rather to extend forgiveness to us. Let me illustrate it this way, just with some weights. Let's act like these weights here represent kind of different types of temptations in our life, right? This, this five pounder, like these are maybe like the temptations that really, man, we can just keep working out. They're not really that tempting, right? Like the temptation to go kill someone. You're like, yeah, I'm good, I'm, I'm fine. Hey, go rob that bank. You're like, nah, I'm good. I, I can keep working this temptation out. This is not ever gonna get too heavy for me. Like I'm still pumping my iron. I'm good. This thing is going to stay above me. I'm not gonna let this thing get me. Are you with me, right? These are the five pound temptations that we have. But then sometimes there are some other temptations and they're, they're maybe in the 15 pound category. Now I know when you look at me, I am, I am such a physical specimen. You just assume that I can lift this stuff all the time. But, um, but these 15 pounders, right? Like these are temptations that like, they're a little harder. Like you can, you can withstand them, but like you get tired at times, right? Like, like the temptation to like, hey, hey, don't snap on your kids. Whew, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying, right? Or, or, or perhaps the temptation, hey, don't post anything on social media that's, that's really dishonoring to other people. And you're like, I'm still going, I'm still going. Hey, don't exaggerate, right? Whatever it is. And you're just, you can, you can hold it up, but at times it's like, this is starting to get me a little bit here, right? And then there are those temptations and, and all of us have different ones. They're not like universal of which temptations are our 25 pounders. But there are some of those that are like, oof, these are a little bit harder and heavier. Perhaps it's like, hey, you know, keep your mind pure and only look at images and videos that are pleasing to Jesus. You're like, <laughs> hey, um, drink within limitation, but don't over drink. You know what I'm saying? It's the bourbon country here. Are you kidding me? <laughs> hey, hey, don't look online and, and continue to compare yourself to all the other people on social media. Uh, or maybe, hey, don't forget, be generous and give 10% of what you got. Oh no! <laughs> Eventually, whatever it is, pick your poison. We get smashed under the weight and we sin. And Jesus empathizes with us, but he never got crushed under the weight. He never did. And so he empathized with us. He says, I know what it's like. He's like, my arms are still shaking and breaking, but I'm not going to let this thing go because I love you too much. And I need to provide the way and the remedy for each and every one of you. Because I love you. I'm crazy about you. And I can forgive you. Does he have the willingness and the desire? Just look at that empty, vacant tax collector's booth. Just, just remember that banqueting table and who Jesus chooses to dine with. Just remember the Son of God holding up the weight and remind yourself, absolutely, absolutely.
absolutely, he can forgive you and he wants to forgive you. And I'm exhausted. (laughs) Still got another service, holy cow, all right. Hey, as we close, can Jesus forgive me? I know personally I have to say yes because I don't know where I'd be without him. And I want to promise and tell you, yes, he can forgive you. Does he have the authority and the ability? Don't forget that hole in the roof that screams out. That paralyzed man got up and walked and he can heal you. Does Jesus have the desire and the willingness? Are you kidding me? There's an empty tax collector's booth. There's a banqueting table. There's a cross. There's an empty tomb. Yes. Yes, he desires to forgive you. And so seek him. Turn to him. His love is abounding and reckless. Like he wants to forgive in an exaggerated way all of you. And as I close, can I, I know we don't know each other very well. So I'm I'm going on a limb here asking you to trust me in this, but I want to, I want to invite you to join with me in a challenge as well that I want to put before us as I close. If you're someone that has received the forgiveness of sin and you believe, yes, Jesus can forgive me, will you, will you do me a favor? Don't do the favor for me. Actually, will you honor God in this? But will you choose to be like those four friends. Those four friends who were so desperate to get their friend to Jesus so he could experience healing. You see, in our culture today, I tend to believe that that the question of can Jesus forgive me isn't as hard to answer personally. Like we've become very preoccupied with ourselves, to be quite honest. And so we're like, yeah, I think he can forgive me. The challenge now is in our culture, we have become so divided and categorized that you have this type of person and that type of person. And we don't any longer do very well at associating with or being in relationship with people who don't think like us, act like us, vote like us, look like us. And we even create our own boxes of types of sins that these are permissible sins that Jesus will forgive, but they commit those types of sins. That is a bunch of garbage. Garbage. And so will you look up and pay attention to the people around you that may be even different from you and invite them to the one who loves them even more than you, which is Jesus. He wants to forgive because forgiveness is not categorical. It's not based on this grouping versus that grouping. No, no, no. Forgiveness is immensely personal. It's for you and 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 you and you and you and you and for me and everyone else who's not even in this place. It's for everyone. So may we be like those four friends. As we experience forgiveness, may we extend forgiveness and bring others to get forgiveness from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Norse, will you stand? We're gonna sing a song just to reflect on this incredible God and his incredible grace. It's been an honor being here with you today. And man, I pray that God would just continue to use this place in a mighty way to make impact in this space, but even far beyond. God bless you.